0: So if you're new here, really glad that you're here. I see a lot of new faces. I'm assuming it has to do in part because of spring break and it snowed yesterday and now the Zags are out of Sweet 16 and so we got to find something else and (laughs) I'm a little bummed, Um, but I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. If I seem a little scattered this morning, it's because I am, Uh, but really glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 2, so if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2 with me. We are continuing in a series called, we're just calling Resurrection, and uh, in the first week of that, it's all in in preparation for Easter, which is next Sunday, and the first week we talked about how Jesus' resurrection really gives us the basis of our hope for a future resurrection, not just a disembodied heaven, but a new heavens and new earth where we will be resurrected, real physical bodies. And last week we talked about how that reality of that future resurrection, it actually informs how we live as a community in the here and now. And what Matt Deason really focused in on was uh, justice and how that impacts how we work for justice in the world and beauty and how we embrace beauty and use our creativity. And that's kind of the last two weeks. And this week we want to really talk about the resurrection from the angle of how does it affect our discipleship. How can we be disciples of the resurrection? So that's the question in front of us this, this morning. So naturally, we'll start in Genesis chapter 2. Sarcastic. So Genesis 2, we'll start in verse 5. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> Ian gets my sense of humor. I Love it. I'm glad that you're sitting in the front center. So in Genesis 2, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis 2 is, is kind of like a, like a focused in account of the creation of the garden of eden so we'll start in verse 5 it says now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the lord god had not sent had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground then the lord god formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being now the lord god had planted a garden in the east in eden and there he put the man he had formed the lord god made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil a river watering the garden flowed from eden from there it was separated into four headwaters the name of the first is the pishon it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. We all know that, of course. The gold of that land is good, as opposed to the bad kind of gold. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So... What I want us to just notice here in Genesis 2 is the physical description of the Garden of Eden, which is the Garden of Delight. Delight, Eden, that's what Eden means. So Eden sitting in the background, you're going to hear your voice, you're going to hear your name a lot. (laughs) Uh, What do we notice about the description? Well, two things I I just want to point out. One is the, the trees in the middle of the garden. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. And there's also a river flowing out from Eden that then splits off into other rivers. And the picture that we get is like this lush, beautiful, kind of wild, untamed garden. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. We read from it last week, so it's all the way, the opposite end of your Bible, to the very end, Revelation 21. And we read from it, uh, like I said, last week, but I want us to finish reading. So we're going to start in verse 22. And Revelation 21 and 22, it's describing the cosmos after the resurrection, after the new heavens and new earth. And we get this picture of what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. And specifically, a city in that place. So if you pick up in Revelation 21, starting in verse 22, it's a description of that city. It says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And note. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book, Lamb's book of life. Then chapter 22, we'll keep going. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever did you happen to catch and notice the similarities between the physical descriptions of the garden and the garden-like city two things i just want you to notice in revelation 21 in the description of this new garden-like city you have the tree of life is there as well and there's rivers flowing out from it now all of that's background but it's crucial background for where we are headed this morning Because you'll remember last week that uh, really after we talked about what our future hope is, we talked about how this reality of what is going to happen in Revelation 21 and 22, how that impacts how we live as a community here and now. It's not that just that this world will be scrapped for a disembodied heaven, but that this will all be redeemed. It'll be restored. It'll, It'll be like Eden, but even better. It's like Eden restored, but that much better. But really the question is, how does that affect, what does it have to do with our discipleship? How does this have any impact on how you or I follow after Jesus? What does it have to do with how we live and love and think and serve and lead like Jesus? Does it make any difference for the sin in my life? Does it make any difference for how I am formed to be more and more like Jesus? Well, what if this new Eden has already started? What if those of us who follow after Jesus and are his disciples, what if that new Eden has already started in you? Well, that's actually language that Jesus uses. Turn with me one more time to John chapter 7. Jesus actually uses language of the new Eden to talk about his disciples. So John chapter 7. This is Jesus at the Feast of Booths. And for those of you who, you know, have never celebrated the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Booths is a Jewish holiday. It's a week-long celebration. And what a good faithful Jew would do was you would build your own booth or like a tent. And it's a reminder of what life was like as the nation of Israel was being brought through the desert. So they would build tents and live in the tents for a week to remember how God had brought the people through the desert and also how he had provided for them. And so there's all these rituals and all, these, all this symbolism to remind the nation how God had provided manna, bread for them to eat, but also water in the middle of the desert. And there was this even specific ritual where they would pour out water on the altar of the temple. And it's in that context that Jesus says this in John 7, verse 37. He says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So did you catch the imagery again? He says, whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So just like a river flowed out from Eden, and just like a river will flow out from the the new Eden-like city, Jesus says rivers of living water will flow out from you. Now we don't have time to go all throughout... The scriptures is to find where this imagery comes up, but it comes up time and time again. And it's always this picture of what the restored, renewed, recreated world is going to be like. It happens in Ezekiel. It happens in Isaiah. From Genesis through to Revelation, there's this picture of rivers of water flowing out from this new Eden-like place. And Jesus says that's happening in you. Now, for me, this, that, that language of rivers of living water flowing out from you, that always sounded like good and poetic which it surely is good and poetic, but I never really understood how that linked to this thread that that goes throughout the entirety of the Bible. Jesus says that in you, the new Eden has started. Because of the Spirit in you, rivers of living water are flowing out from you. Jesus' resurrection is not just simply another miracle to, to prove his identity, though it does help us do that. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of this inbreaking kingdom of God. This future age to come brought into the midst of the present one. The new heavens, the new earth right in the middle. But Jesus tells us and John records it that it's not that just this inbreaking happens in Jesus, but it happens in you. And this is why Jesus uses a language As God has poured out his spirit, God has given his spirit to you, and you are like a new Garden of Eden walking around. So God's spirit has redeemed, God has remade, God has rescued, and God has made new. This is why in Romans chapter 8, we get this really interesting statement about how the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, it's at work living in you. And this is also why in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's able to say this, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. The new creation has come, Paul says. It's not just this language about new identity, which it surely is that. But it's that the new creation, this promise of what the future age is going to be like, he's saying it's happening in you. You see how this matches really the narrative arc of the entirety of the Bible. Genesis, you have creation. Then you have this promise of a new creation, future creation, that's brought together in Revelation. In John 7, Jesus says it starts with you. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, If you are in Christ, the old creation is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. But do you believe that? I mean, do you actually believe that that's true? Do you believe these words that Jesus and Paul speak, saying that that redemption, that changing, that that cosmic new world is actually begun in you? Over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, we see that this is the basis for our discipleship to Christ. Our our discipleship has to be rooted in this reality, that something new has sprung up within us because of God's spirit inside of us. The reality is that you have a new identity. You are a new creation. God's work to recreate the world, it has begun in you because of the spirit living inside of you. So when we think about being disciples of the resurrection, this truth, it really has to be the lens through which we view discipleship. It's not as if the same old me who is rooted in selfishness and pride and anger is trying really hard the best I can to live like Jesus but it's really just never going to work because I'm just stuck and not being able to do it, well, because it's just the same old me. That's not true. That's how it feels sometimes. But the consistent teaching in the New Testament is that you are a new creation. You are something new. God's spirit and power is now inside of you. That is what then motivates and empowers us to live like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to love like him, to serve like him, to lead like him. And remember what Paul reminds the Roman church that I referenced earlier. The same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same power of God is at work in you. To be a disciple of the resurrection is to be a disciple empowered by God as a new creation. To be disciples where the new Eden has already started. So what I want to spend the rest of my time this morning on is really how this looks and how this plays out. And with some potentially helpful examples from my own life, maybe they're not helpful, but you kind of have to listen to me anyways. (laughs) So first, this has to change the way that we view the sin in our lives. And I'll use this really easy example of sexual sin, um, which, let's say, covers the umbrella of everything from... Violating boundaries with uh, your boyfriend or girlfriend, addiction to pornography, lust, all kinds of things fall under that heading. And I really actually thought about, hey, can I, can I try and think of a different kind of subject to, to talk about? Because sexual sin gets so much airtime in churches, right? We talk about it a fair amount. We don't really talk about pride. We don't really talk about greed. And we definitely don't talk about gluttony. And, and maybe that's the sort of thing because, you know, we struggle with it more. And so we just don't talk about it. But this applies to those areas as well. I use sexual sin because of my own life, but also because the reality is that as I look around the room, most of us have struggled with it at some point in time. And or we are tempted by it continually just because of the world that we live in. Particularly the, the young men and women in the room. But this kind of, constant conversation of what's the boundary, what's the right, you know, where's the right place to put the line in my relationship or the really constant confrontation with pornography in our culture, whether it be, like, specifically you're looking for it on the internet or just in movies or in songs. It's too common to not talk about it, really. Now, there have been two really pivotal moments in my life that changed the way that I thought about specifically sexual sin. Uh, the first I kind of started talking about it, is this, this kind of idea about the line question. Where is the line in my relationship that, you know, how close can I get to sinning without sinning and feeling bad? Right? It's really the question, right? You want to define where the line is in your relationship. Really the question is, how close can I get to the edge without, like, can I look over the edge without falling over? That's really the question that, that we're asking. And I remember, that was probably like my second time in a church uh, as an adult. And listening to the pastor kind of talk about that, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's exactly what I'm asking. And then he said, that's not the right question. That is not the question that we should be asking. And in fact, that's not, these are my words, this is not the new creation, like new Eden kind of question to ask. The, the question to ask, really, is how far away from that line can I get? Really, how, how much like Jesus can I live? Not how close can I get to sinning without feeling bad about it, but how far away from the line can I get? That's the new creation, empowered by God kind of question. And that simple change for that the line question, as I call it, it radically changed the way I viewed sin. Because I was no longer asking the question, well, is this okay with my girlfriend, even though we're not having sex? Or is it, is it really over the line to look at these videos on my computer? Or, or I started realizing that change, I, I should be avoiding the line altogether. So it got me to a place where I wasn't trying to define things that way, but the reality was I was still stuck. I was still stuck in it. Because that's actually what sin does to us, right? It actually binds us and makes us slaves. So the, the next mindset changed my understanding even more. Why would you ever go back to that? If you're a new creation in Christ, why would you ever do that? If God has sprung up this new work in you and that is the truth of who you are, why would you go back? That's not you anymore. You have a new identity you're a new creation. There are rivers of living water flowing out from you. That's not you anymore. We have to learn to live with this new identity. It, it does not come naturally to us. It's sort of like the identity change, and this is an analogy, the identity change that happens on your wedding day. On May 31st of 2014, I got to marry the most beautiful girl in the world. She was and still is the girl of my dreams, Jenna. She's downstairs. And we did the marriage ceremony, right? It was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And by 3.30, I gained a new identity. I became a married man. I became a husband. And Jenna gained a new identity. She became a married woman. She became a wife. Now, we had to learn to live like husband and wife. We had to learn to live with these new identities. There was no longer... Dinners for me that consisted of I'm not lying, a hot dog wrapped in cheese, wrapped in a tortilla with ketchup and then a can of tuna. That was a pretty regularly regular dinner for me. Those of you who really hate tuna are now grossed out. There's also no longer the practice that Many many of us guys particularly still do where you just let the, the laundry basket pile up until you run out of things to wear and then you go over to the pile and you kind of start sniffing stuff and see like, oh, I guess I can still wear it. Th- there was no more of that. That, I, that was a mindset of old single me that I had to change. I had to learn to live differently. And, and there was no more plastic plates from Ikea that I'd had for like a decade. No more just thinking about myself. No more just considering my own needs. But do I sometimes still act like a selfish single guy? Yes, I do. So I have a new identity, but I also have these old patterns of living and thinking that I've carried over into my new life as a husband. And I'm still learning to live out this new identity that I have. I hope to one day be as cute as Mark Few's parents. Anyone watch like the Sweet 16, Mark Few's parents on TV? It's like he's got like a gray flat top and he's got a sucker in his mouth and just super cute old couple. I have no clue what their relationship is like, but my hope is that by the time that I get to that age, that living out this identity of being a husband, I'm actually able to do it more fully. In a similar way, I am learning you are learning, we are learning how to be these new creations, to have this new identity in Christ. Your, your discipleship has to be motivated out of that mindset or else what you're bound to do is, is live in this cycle of the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is I'm a terrible sinner and I'm bound to sin and you'll just be stuck in that. And in that, what you're doing is you're focusing on the sin as, wow, how terrible I am, and and I'm just stuck in this. And it feels like that. I'm not downplaying that. It feels like that. But that's not what God says about you. God says you're redeemed, God says you're justified, God says you're sanctified. With a new life, a new heart, a new mind, you are a new creation now live out of this identity. So first, this changes the way that we view sin in our lives. But second, this has to also influence the way that we view empowerment. Empowerment to be Jesus' disciples. So I'll reference it again, and I think, we have, I think I made a slide for it. Romans eight eleven. This is where Paul says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. If believing that the Spirit of the Creator God, who was able to speak the cosmos into existence by His very words, if believing that His Spirit inside of you is harder to capture, think of it this way. The Spirit that was at work To raise Jesus' body from the dead. Really dead. Really dead. In the grave. No life. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit is currently, right now, living inside of you. Rivers of living water are flowing out of you because of the Spirit in you. So when it comes time, not only to deal with the sin in our lives, but to live like Jesus and pray like Jesus and speak like Jesus and serve and lead like him, you you have to realize that it's not simply that God just changed you at one point in time, kind of dropped you off in this new setting and then waved by, see you later when I come back. No. It's the spirit at work living in you, empowering you to pray for people, empowering you to serve, empowering you to work for justice, empowering you to embrace beauty and creativity. To think back to last week. It's it's the same spirit that empowers you to serve the students in your classroom. Because I know spring break is coming up and I know a lot of teachers are really looking forward to it. It's the same spirit that empowers you to support your coworkers empowers you to be a husband or a wife or empowers you to be a mom or a dad. Man, I don't have kids, but I I have a lot of friends who have kids, and I am so impressed. Just the fact that you serve and love your kids the way that you do. From from a young single, or not single, from a young (laughs) married guy. We'll delete that from the podcast. From a young married guy without kids. I am constantly impressed by those of you who have children and are willing to raise kids and love them and serve them and show them the way of Jesus. It's impressive. And know that even if I never say anything in another context, it's encouraging to me to see that. And I I legitimately appreciate having you around. It's the same Spirit of God that is empowering you to do the sorts of things that God motivates you to do. Rivers of living water flow out from you to others. You you get to be like this newly empowered, new creation, new Eden that has rivers of living water flowing out from them. And if you're stuck in the the self-doubt of, well, what do I have to give? The answer is quite simply, the rivers of living water that God is causing to flow out from you. That's all you have. It's all any of us have. And I know that I have heard the similar subject probably a thousand times now. But I also know I need reminding. Because of the resurrection, because of this future, now started in you, the new age starting in you, All sorts of things are open to us. Those things that we think often that we get stuck in that seem insurmountable because of that new creation, those things are actually conquerable. So, just as I close, I want you to think about those two ideas together both the empowerment and how we deal with sin. There are times in our lives when we really do feel like we're stuck when we really do feel enslaved to sin. Like we're simply bound to repeat it over and over and over again. Our habits and our thoughts can be the source of so much frustration and so much defeat. And we're often tempted to give up. Just give in. This is who I am. I guess I'll just keep doing it. They can feel permanent and they can feel insurmountable. But if you actually visually picture what the Spirit did to Jesus' dead in the grave body. The life that was breathed back into that flesh. The life and the power operating in that event. And then you realize that that same power is at work and available to you. In light of that, and in light of that resurrection, everything that seems insurmountable its actually quite conquerable. Death can't hold Jesus and sin can't hold you. Death can't hold Jesus and sin can't hold you. The Spirit brings new life, starts the new creation, the new Eden in you, and the resurrection shows us what the Spirit is capable of doing in our lives. We are more empowered for inner transformation than any other religious group or any other spirituality. And we should expect, in faith, for for the new creation, resurrection sort of stuff to come in our lives. And this is way different and way better than the try harder, do better mentality that most of us end up in. Our discipleship is not powered by grit and discipline and the grinding of teeth, though discipline plays a role. No, our discipleship is powered by the Spirit of God the spirit of the resurrection, and the reality of the new creation that has already started in you. The old has gone, the new has come, and tomorrow does not have to be the same as today. Let's pray. Lord, it is often really hard for us to believe certain things that you say, because of our experience. We see things in our lives or we see things in the world and it just doesn't line up. But I know the fruit of this and I know that the constant struggle it is for myself to believe it. So I pray that through your spirit this morning, especially as we turn to the tables and we come to receive communion, God, that you would speak to us That as we receive the body and the blood, as we receive the bread and the cup, that you would teach us, that you would empower us to live this new life. And God, for those of us who feel stuck in sin, this morning, God, show us what it's like to break the power of sin and darkness. Show us your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.